Good morning. We're continuing this morning in our series, which we've called Origins, where we look at the first 12 chapters of the book of Genesis. We'll be looking at Genesis chapters 4 and 5 this morning, so if you have your Bibles with you, maybe you'll open those to chapter 4. We're going to let the Bible do most of the talking this morning. Uh, we're going to read almost the entire chapters of chapters 4 and 5. While you're turning, let's just give you a quick review. Genesis 1 was all about God creating everything out of nothing. Chapter 2, God created man and woman in God's own image. And then he placed them in this beautiful garden and he gave them one rule. He told them not to eat of a certain tree. And in Genesis 2.16, we see God telling Abraham, he says, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Well, Genesis 3 comes, and Adam and Eve disobeyed God, and they ate. They ate from the tree that they weren't allowed to eat from. And so sin entered the world and altered the world forever. Interestingly, Adam and Eve did not immediately die. God punished them, but he also at the same time promised to send a Savior. And speaking to actually to the serpent in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And this little phrase, her offspring, really refers to Jesus. So look ahead in time when Jesus will come as the Savior and battle against Satan and win. It's the first reference in our Old Testament, or even in our Bibles, to the coming Messiah. And we'll come back to that a little later this morning. And then at the end of Genesis 3, God booted them out of the garden. He just kicked them out, put a flaming sword and a soldier warrior angel to guard the entrance so that Adam and Eve could not come back into the Garden of Eden. And off they went. And so what we want to do this morning is look at what happened next in chapters 4 and 5. And chronologically, this covers about the next thousand years of man's existence on earth. And so we've got a, a lot of stuff that is compact and compressed in here. I'll remind you that the writer of the book of Genesis is Moses. Moses wrote many thousands of years later when he was living about this what took place. So when I refer to Moses this morning, I'm not making the mistake. Uh, you're not hearing me incorrectly to think that Moses is existing in the story. I'll just refer to him as the writer. So let's go ahead, and if you would, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4, and we'll begin in verse 1. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. 
His desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So we got Adam and Eve, the newlywed couple, thrown out of the Garden of Eden, which was a bit of honeymoon for them. And off they go into the land to start their own family. And so how does it start? Well, it starts out pretty well, frankly. They have children. They have a son named Cain. They have another son named Abel. And these guys are not deadbeats. One of them becomes a farmer. One of them becomes a shepherd. They're good guys. And they even worship God. And they bring offerings to God. And so, as newlywed parents, you probably look and say, well, things are going pretty well so far. Some kids, and they're walking with the Lord. But then everything crumbled pretty quickly, real fast, in fact. It turns out that God was pleased with Abel's offering, but not with Cain's offering. And Moses doesn't tell us exactly why, but it's easy to figure out. There's nothing wrong with bringing crops as an offering. It isn't the nature of what Cain brought to God as an offering. Moses describes Abel's offering this way. He says it's the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And it's very clear that what Abel brought was from the heart. He brought the first and the best to the Lord. And in the very same sentence where Moses has the opportunity to describe Cain's offering, he doesn't say that. He simply says Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground. And we can conclude from that that Cain's offering was neither the first nor the best, and therefore it was displeasing to God. And immediately Cain became jealous, and God warned Cain. He said, watch out, sin is crouching, ready to devour you, but you must not submit to it. Cain, of course, ignored him, and then things got really bad. Jumping down then to verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. The word there is murder. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden." So things happen pretty fast here. Cain lures his brother out in the field and kills him in cold blood. The first man born on earth is a murderer, and the second man born on earth is a murder victim. Not a good start. God declared Cain guilty, but he didn't kill Cain. He didn't kill him. He has mercy on him. He punished him. Yeah, he cursed his crops and he sent him away to wander in the land. And then he protected him. He put some sort of mark on Cain so that when he was out and, and, and Abel's uh, brothers or his sons might have come around to take vengeance on Cain, they couldn't do so. So God protected him. But all in all, not a good start. Adam and Eve must be crushed by this point. Their firstborn son is dead. Their secondborn son has been banished from the land, things are not going well at all. 
What's happening is that sin that entered in when Adam and Eve ate the apple is now permeating the rest of society and growing. So what happens to Cain? We'll follow on in verse 16. It says, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushel, and Methushel fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada and the other Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was a forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. So pause there. Cain moves away from his mom and dad. He takes a wife, obviously one of his own sisters, because in those days there just weren't any other women around to date. And he starts his own family, his own family line of Cain. Well, how did that work out? Well, they prospered, but frankly, they were godless. Moses stops at this guy named Lamech. He says Lamech's sons were godless, but they prospered. Jabel started a farming and agriculture business. Jubel was a musician, and he made stringed instruments and wind instruments. Tubal Cain developed a way to make tools and instruments out of iron and bronze. So they created their own little culture without God. They were clever, they were industrious, they were artsy, they were gifted, they were talented. They were immersed in their own little world, but without God. And then Moses describes this guy named Lamech, who is a real piece of work. He's just downright evil. Lamech takes for himself two wives and commits the sin of polygamy. Lamech is proud and arrogant. He didn't worship God at all. And Lamech was a murderer, just like his ancestor Cain. And then he bragged about it. He not only murdered a man, but he bragged about it. And then he claimed for himself self-protection. He said, well, if God protected Cain because he murdered his brother, protect myself 77-fold. That's a bold, cold-blooded murderer. And that's what we have for the line of Cain. What's Moses trying to say? Well, he's making a point. He's saying that the line of Cain was sinful and ungodly. Evil was escalating over time. What started out as a simple act of disobedience to God, taking a, a fruit off a tree that was forbidden, became murder in the case of Cain. And in his ancestors, Lamech, polygamy, more murder, arrogance, pride, godlessness. Meanwhile, what's happening with mom and dad? Well, Adam and Eve, in verse 25, 
And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. So to Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So Adam and Eve had another son, Seth, to replace their murdered son, Abel. Now, despite all their sorrow and disappointment, Adam and Eve remained faithful to God. When Seth was born, they were very grateful to God's generosity and his mercy. And so they remained faithful. And the key point is in verse 26, where it says, At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Moses is making a very bold and important statement here. He says, even though there's sin and death all over in the world now, sin has permeated all aspects of society. There are still a people worshiping the Lord. And Moses is painting a sharp contrast here. You can see it very clearly. He's a clever writer, Moses is. He gives this whole story, this whole litany of the line of Cain. And in a minute, he's going to give the litany of the line of, of, of Seth. But you can see the complex. It's different. Cain's descendants were godless and evil and arrogant. And Seth and the people around him were worshiping God. But now we get to chapter 5. So we've gone through chapters 1 through 4. And we're about to enter chapter 5. If you go back to the 30,000-foot level for just a minute, I want to make a couple of observations about what we've discovered so far in Genesis. The observations are these. One, Ab and Eve sinned, but they didn't die. God booted them out of the garden. Cain murdered his brother Abel, but he didn't die. God punished him and banished him from the land. Cain's descendants were wicked and ungodly, but they didn't die. In fact, they prospered, even without God. So, what's going on? Way back in chapter 2, Genesis 2.17, which I read earlier, which I'll read again. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And yet, here we are, four chapters into the book of Genesis, and nobody has died with the exception of Cain, and he got murdered. So, what's going on? Is God kidding around? Was God just making idle threats? Did he change his mind? Did he forget? Nobody's died. Well, nobody's died yet. Moses interrupts his story. He takes a little breather here and, and pauses and gives us next in chapter 5 a genealogy of Adam's line starting with his son Seth. Not covering the people that grew up as descendants of Cain, his other son Seth. So I want to read through that. Moses is making a point here. This is an odd genealogy. This isn't simply a listing of the sons and the sons and the sons, although Moses does that. But Moses is making a point, and let's see if we can figure out what he's trying to say. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 5 of Genesis. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. 
When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. And it goes on and on, all the way down to Noah. Slide down to verse 28. When Lamech had lived 182 years, now you've got to recognize that this is a different Lamech than the one we just talked about who was a piece of work. This is a good Lamech, different guy, different line entirely. Don't be confused. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. One after another. God blessed the man with a son. God blessed the man with other sons and daughters. God blessed the man with a long life. And he died. And he died. And he died. And he died. What's Moses' point? Moses' point is quite simple. God said, on the day that sin enters the world, you shall surely die. And they surely did die. The sin of Adam and Eve brought death. Sin and death. Sin and death. Sin and death. Paul puts it quite eloquently in Romans 5.12, a verse we talked about last week. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that is through Adam and Eve, and death through sin, death spread to all men because all sinned. And that is the world that we still live in today. Sin and death. We are born, we sin, we grow up, we sin, we mature, we sin, we get old, we sin, and we die. Without God, that is an accurate representation of what happens today, isn't it? And it's got to be, without God in your life, it's got to be extremely discouraging and disappointing and disheartening. But if you look around at people that you know who don't have God in their lives, that's the reality of what they're living. And what are they doing? What are your friends and neighbors who don't know God? What are they doing? Well, they're trying to make this miserable life here as enjoyable as they can. They're entertaining themselves. They're adding things that are fun into this life to combat that burden of sin and death that surrounds them everywhere. My favorite bumper sticker I saw on the back of a Corvette 
brand new shiny red Corvette. There's a bumper sticker. I was like, why anybody would ever put a bumper sticker on the back of a Corvette is beyond me. But then when I read it, I realized it was totally appropriate. It said, the man who dies with the most toys wins. This Corvette was a toy for this man. And his whole purpose in life was to gather as many toys around him as he could. And that, by and large, is what many people think of in our lives. And so they surround their lives with stuff, stuff to do, stuff to entertain them, things like sports and cars and hunting and, oh, sorry, trucks. (laughs) And Aggie football games, sorry. Pets and guns and boats and education. Video games, books, you name it. Just like the descendants of Cain. Strong themselves with things to salve that wound at the fact that we live in a world of sin and death. We live, we sin, we die. Sin and death. And that's a pretty sad story. And that's what we get from chapters 4 and 5 of Genesis. But wait, I skipped one, didn't I? Way back in Genesis 5, I skipped one. In this long line of men who live, have a son, have other children, live a long life, and die, I skipped one. I want you to turn to it right now. There's one man who broke the mold. He broke the routine. He got out of the pattern. His name is Enoch, and he's the son of Jared, and he is the descendant of Seth. And in chapter 5, in verse 21, we read about this guy named Enoch. So let me read it for you. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years, and he died. No. Sorry, I got in the habit. I couldn't stop myself. It doesn't say, and he died, does it? It says, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Well, that's different. Enoch didn't die. God simply scooped him off the earth alive and took him up to heaven in bodily form. Here, right in the middle of all this long list of deaths, we see this exception. We see Enoch breaking the pattern. And Moses sort of slipped it in there. And if you weren't paying attention, you might have just glossed right over it. But I don't think that was Moses' intention. I think Moses' intention was for you to see that loud and clear, stuffed in between like bologna in a sandwich, where one piece of bread is all these guys that died, followed by all these other guys that died, and in the middle we have Enoch. Enoch didn't die. So who was Enoch? What do we know about him? Well, we don't know too much about him, but we know three things about Enoch. Three things we know about Enoch. The first thing we know is we get it right here from Genesis chapter 5. It says that Enoch walked with God. Walked with God. Now that's, that, that phrase means he had a life that was characterized by communion with God, obedience to God, a love for God. Enoch sought God out and he worked to please God. That's the first thing we know about Enoch. The second thing we know about Enoch is that he had faith. Enoch had faith. He believed God existed. He believed God would reward those who seek him. And Enoch's faith pleased God. 
The way that we know that is not from the book of Genesis, from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11, remember that great long list that we call the Hall of Faith. Guys that were faithful. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5 and 6. Enoch is in that list. And here's what the writer of Hebrews says about Enoch. He says, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. You get the idea? Enoch just disappeared. God scooped him up bodily, took him into heaven, and nobody could find him. And then it goes on to say, now before he was taken, as before God took Enoch up to heaven, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So that's the second thing we know about Enoch. First thing is we know that Enoch walked with God. And the second thing is that Enoch had faith. The third thing that we know about Enoch is that he was a prophet. Enoch prophesied. Now, John, where do you get that? Well, that's not in the book of Genesis either. To find that, we have to actually go to this little book called Jude, which is in the New Testament, very short letter, uh, one short of uh, Revelation. It's the second to the last book of your Bible. If you find Revelation 1, turn back one page, you'll be in Jude. Don't turn back two pages, you'll go too far. Jude, 14 and 15. This is what Jude says about Enoch. Jude has just started talking about ungodly people living in this world. And so he says, Jude writes, he says, it was also about these, that is, it was also about these ungodly people, the same kind of ungodly people that walked during Enoch's time, walked during Jude's time in the New Testament. Jude is basically saying, Enoch prophesied about these ungodly people. He says, it is about these ungodly people that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, so we're still talking about the same Enoch, prophesied, saying, behold, The Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. You get the idea that I understand that Jude's talking about ungodly people, right? He only uses the term about five times here. So what did Enoch prophesy about? Enoch prophesied about the second coming of Christ. Hold that thought for just a second. Enoch prophesied about the second coming of Christ. Not the first coming, the second. Now, how do I know that? Well, let's go back and see what Enoch prophesied. It says, quote, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment. The word, the Lord, In the book of Jude is a Greek word which refers to Jesus. Ten thousands of his holy ones is talking about a legion of angels. And it says that the Lord is coming to do what? To execute judgment on ungodly people. Well, those are the things that happen in Jesus' second coming, not his first coming. In his first coming, Jesus came as a tiny baby in a crib, not with a legion of angels. In his first coming, Jesus came to save, not to judge. In his second coming, Jesus comes to judge. If you were to look at Matthew 25, 31 and 32, 
Jesus is talking about himself and his second coming. And this is what he writes. He says what he says. He says, when the Son of Man, referring to himself, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, Jesus is on earth when he speaks this, so he's talking about when he's coming back the second time, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. The separating the sheep from the goats is all about judgment. Jesus says, when I come back again, I'm coming back with a legion of angels, and I'm coming back to judge the nations. It's exactly what Enoch prophesied about. Now, I don't know about you, but I find this wild. I find it amazing. Think about this. Way back in the book of Genesis, in chapter 5, way back at almost the dawn of man, right? We're only, we're only seven generations away from Adam at this point. If you count the chronology, it's only 622 years into the, the, the dawn of man. That's not many, very many years at all. Among all these generations of guys that die and they die and they die and they die and they die, sandwiched in here we find this guy named Enoch, and Enoch prophesied at this time of, in history about the second coming of Jesus. So, if you combine Genesis 3 and Genesis 5, the amazing thing is that man has barely begun his walk and God has already pushed into that and revealed his full plan. Isn't that amazing? In chapter 3, speaking to the serpent, he gives a clue to Adam and Eve that there will be an offspring, an offspring who will battle the serpent and win. That's referring to the first coming of Jesus. And in Genesis 5, thousands of years before Jesus comes the first time, and many more thousands of years before he comes the second time, Enoch prophesies about the second coming of Jesus. It says he will return with a legion of angels to judge all sinners. And that's the second coming of Jesus. And it's all revealed in Genesis 5 right here in the middle of all this pain, sin, and death. I find that amazing and tremendously encouraging. Adam and Eve sinned. Sin brought death. Generation after generation of men sinned and died. And man is on this steady course, downhill course, of increasing sin and death. And in the middle of all this, God just pops up and sends a very clear message. I'm sending a Messiah. Not once, but twice. First to save, second time to judge. Well, we live today in a world of sin and death. We're surrounded by it, just like in Genesis, and yet there's still hope. A Savior comes, first to save, and then to judge, and that Savior conquers sin and death. At His first coming, 2,000 years ago, Jesus conquered sin. He died on the cross, and every sin in the world, mine included, if you trusted in Jesus, 
Your sins, past, present, and future were conquered by Jesus on the cross. He died to pay the penalty for our sins, and it's done. At His second coming in the end times, Jesus will conquer death. Heaven and earth will be renovated. God will live with His people. And in this perfect world, there will be no sin and there will be no death. And this message, which is the message of the good news of the gospel, is very clear. It's revealed in Genesis 3 and 5. Think about it this way. Adam and Eve and Enoch lived over here. And looking into the future, they looked forward to the first coming of Christ. And they looked forward to the second coming of Christ. We, on the other hand, live over here. And we look back 2,000 years to the first coming of Christ when he defeated sin. And we look forward, not sure when could be today, to the second coming of Christ when he will conquer death. At his first coming, Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sins. And if we trust in Jesus, the gospel is very clear, if we trust in Jesus, all of our sins, past, present, and future, are paid for, and we get to go to heaven when we die. At a second coming of Christ in the end time, something else is going to happen. Heaven and earth will be combined and renovated. And we will be reunited with our bodies. We talked about this several weeks ago. Our bodies will be resurrected. Our glorious bodies, our glorious perfect bodies will be resurrected, combined with our soul. And we will go to that place and live with God forever, face to face. It sends chills up my spine every time I say that. And in that place, there will be no death and there will be no sin. Now, if you haven't trusted in Jesus, the story is a little different. In fact, if you haven't trusted in Jesus, you should gather as many toys as you can. Eat, drink, and be merry. Because this is as good as it gets. For those who haven't trusted in Jesus... What awaits them after this horrible life of sin and death is an eternity in hell of eternal agony and pain. It'll be a lot worse than what we live with today. So if you haven't trusted in Jesus, may I simply encourage you to do so. How do you do it? Well, it's easy. There was a guy who ran a jail a jailhouse in Philippi, and he asked Paul, he said, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, look, I'll make it easy for you. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That's what he said. Doesn't have to get any more complicated than that. Romans 10, 9 and 10, Paul wrote, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. Justified means to be declared righteous even though you're guilty. With your heart one believes and is justified, and with your mouth one confesses and is saved. Let's pray. Lord God, we live in a world of sin and death. Genesis 4 and 5 is just a great reminder that 
When sin entered the world, death came to all men, just as you said it would happen. And yet, in the midst of sin and death, way back in the beginning, you made it clear that this was not your will to leave man in this state. You revealed to Adam that the Messiah, Jesus, the offspring of the woman, would come the first time to save us by dying on the cross for our sins. And you revealed through Enoch that the Messiah, the same Jesus, would come a second time to judge the world. And so, Lord, we are a people with great hope. We believe that you loved us so much that you sent your one and only Son to die for our sins. We believe that when we trust in Jesus, all of our sins, past, present, and future, are paid. And we will go to heaven when we die. And we believe Jesus is coming back. And that he, we will be reunited with glorious bodies and live forever in your presence, face to face, where there will be no sin and no death. Oh God, for all of us who placed our faith in your Son, Jesus, we take great joy and the assurance, and the confidence that we are truly saved. Thank you, Lord, for sending your Son, Jesus, to conquer sin and death on our behalf. Thank you, Lord, for sending your Son, Messiah. And Lord, for those who have not placed their faith and trust in your Son, Jesus, I pray earnestly for them this morning that today would be the day that they do so, that they would put it off no longer, that they would follow Paul's clear instruction that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I pray that for any that are here this morning or any that would hear my voice. I know that is your will, O God. We thank you for your son. We thank you for the Messiah. We look forward to his return. We look forward, Lord God, to being with you forever, face to face, where there's no sin, and there's no death. And Lord God, I pray this in a powerful and precious name of my Lord and your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.